0: So open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. It'll take just not long this morning to get there, and then there's going to be supplementary text that you're not going to see on a screen, but you can just quote, write down, do what you need to do. Take out your phones, take out whatever uh, you need to, to get the scriptures, and then to take notes. They're on your bulletins as well. We've been kind of going through this series, asking questions and answering them with subpoints, and we're going to do the same thing today. And uh, to my surprise, honestly, when I started listening to people on this topic and then doing my own research... Uh, I I found that this sermon is, is, this idea is deeply theological, and it seems like it's straightforward, and it is, uh, but there's a theology behind why it's so significant. And so here are the three questions. I'm going to get started. You can write them down now. You can put them in your bulletins. You're going to see like the, the question, and you can just get this in your head. Number one, what does God's law say about murder? Number two, what does Jesus say about murder? Because Jesus takes the minimum standard And then what he does is he adds to it. He does that over and over again on the Sermon on the Mount. And so the law says something, and the law is hard to follow. You think the law is hard to follow, wait till Jesus gets a hold of it, and then he adds to it. He came to fulfill it, and so he's going to say more. And he's actually going to create an impossible standard that the only way, I'm giving away the sermon early, the only way we can meet the standard is if his blood covers our sin and we're walking in a new life with him. And so what does the law say about murder? What does Jesus say about murder? And then here's the closing question. How do we overcome a murderous heart. And so a, a little giveaway, we all have in our sin a murderous heart. And I'm going to define that in a little bit. Uh, but just to kind of give it some context so we can see how big of a problem this is, even in a literal sense, not a murderous heart or uh, not even what Jesus' command is, but just literally murder. Uh, we, we have this idea that we're working towards a utopia in our world where we're self-actualizing. And, and I've been trained in, in therapeutic process. And the starting point of therapeutic process in the secular sense outside of the Christian realm is is just totally backwards. And the whole idea is that you're good and that we have to find the good in you. And so now there's this problem as a Christian. It's called the Bible. And the Bible says you're a sinner and that Jesus needs to save you and that he gives you a new heart. And so it's an inverted ethic uh, that we walk in. And so humanism has absolutely bled through all fabric of Western society. And then we're slapped with the reality of our sin right in the face, and we can't deny the fact that this utopia that we're trying to live in is actually getting worse and not better. And one of the evidences of that is murder. 1900s was the most brutal killing in the history of the world. 175 million lives were taken in the 1900s alone, and so what happened was this. Uh, Because of our sin and because of technology advancing, we use technology to get a lot better at things, good and bad. One of the things we got a lot better at was really horrible, was murder. 175 million people in just this one century alone were murdered. Atrocities in humanity, really by four main characters, and you know a few of them, right? Hitler, Stalin, Lenin, These, these guys were absolute mass murderers. And so here's a little theological context to the concept. Murder is a demonic issue in the sense that God is the author of life, and Satan is the author of death. In fact, Jesus is getting persecuted by men that want to murder him. And in John 8:44, he says this to these guys. He says, "You're like your father. Your father is the devil, and he's been a murderer since the beginning." And so we know the thief comes to do some things, to steal, to what? Kill, kill and to destroy. And so it's theological. It's deeply theological. And so here's the first question. We'll go to the Old Testament. You can follow the supplementary text. Number one, what does the law say about murder? And it sounds kind of boring, but it's actually a super interesting conversation. The Bible is very clear. Thou shalt not kill. In our English Standard Revised Translation, Exodus 20, 13, thou shall not murder. And so the the thing that we need to understand is that the Bible gives a certain dignity to life that if you walk in here as an atheist or an evolutionist, you might not have. And it's not that you don't want to have that dignity to life. It's just impossible because of the way that you understand life altogether. And so the Bible talks about life in this sense of intrinsic value. That there's an underlying assumption that our forefathers of this country, even if they didn't always operate in it, they possessed when they wrote the Constitution, that there is a unique value to human life. And so when the Constitution was written, it was this idea that we all have the right to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and at the foundation of everything you do or want to be is the assumption that you have the right to live. Okay, so that's a biblical idea. It's an Old Testament idea, which is why it's so offensive to God when you don't value life. So then here's a definition we can all walk in as we get started. What's the definition of murder in the Bible? Well, I think if you look at the different texts and the cross references, you have this one idea that comes from a pastor named Tony Evans that I liked. I thought, well, I'm going to use this one. He says, the definition of murder in the Old Testament and the New Testament is this and you need to kind of write it down and then underline a word because there's one word that that really encapsulates the idea and it's the first word unauthorized unauthorized the unauthorized executions or slaying of another individual and so, so simply put it it's it's this idea of homicide that you don't have the right by your own determination to remove the life of somebody else it's just simply not your decision to make And so then on the flip side of that, there are these instances in Scripture, and we see them Old Testament and New Testament, Uh, so there are these these ideas of capital punishment. There are these ideas of authorized execution in Scripture. There are just wars. There's self-defense. There's the government oversight of capital punishment. And so, for example, even in the New Testament, because we love to go, well, that's the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, Jesus has... Thieves on the cross, these people next to whom were guilty as charged, and he never gives us the idea that they shouldn't be on that cross, but what does he say? He says, today you'll be with me in paradise, but he understands uh, that the government has this oversight and these people committed a crime and there's a penalty for that crime. But, but the Bible specifically addresses this idea of murder as the unauthorized, unapproved by God use of taking an innocent life. And so you, you can't kill because you don't like someone or you don't want them to live. And it's always this idea that there's an oversight over it. It's not your personal whim to go take a life. That's homicide. That's murder. I heard a pastor say this week that it's really all forms of sides are, are, are ways that there, there are ungodly uses of murder. So, so suicide, killing of self, little caveat, that doesn't mean you can't be forgiven, okay? But it's obviously not God's will that you would take your own life. Patricide, killing of a father. Matricide, killing of a mother. Fratricide, killing of a brother. I didn't even know there were all these sides. Soricide, the killing of a sister. Emphicide, killing of a baby. Paricide, killing of a relative. Genocide, killing of a people. 1900s, 175 million. Feticide, the killing of a fetus. Thou shall not murder. You do not have, according to the sixth commandment, the right by God to self authorize. And so so here's the bigger idea. Because because you're different than everything else around you, there's a theology to it. And the theology is this. It's what Scripture says. Because you were made in the image of who? Of whom? Is it who or whom? I don't know. Who cares, right? Who are you made in the image of? You can talk out loud. Let's just all operate in this together. You were made in the image of? God, right? And so if you're made in the image of God, then you would have no right to take someone else's life who's innocent, who's also made in the image of God. And when you choose to take a life it's somebody that's made in the image of God, then the offense is larger than the life you've taken or the family that's devastated. The offense then is against who? It's against God himself. Because God creates and God sustains. And of all the things that are damaging in secular culture, When it comes to this idea of evolution, one of the worst things about evolution is that in a sense you lose your dignity because in the idea of an evolving species, then really all you and I are are very lucky animals or primates that have evolved through a process over tons of, you know, millions of years so that we can be the lucky people that have the intellectual integrity of now calling ourselves human. But really we're just sophisticated animals. We're just lucky animals. And God's saying, No, that's not how it works. That when I created you, you were far more than just an extension of an inferior thing. It sounds political, but it's really, really not. Uh, The founder of PETA, and I would imagine there's some people that like PETA in church here today, but it's South Dakota, right? And I know that. So uh, PETA actually stands for something. Did you know that? It's P E T A. I'm not going to make a joke about that. I know you can find signs like passing Groton and and billboards about what PETA really means, like people eating animals or tasty animals or something weird like that, but that's not where I'm going, I'm not gonna make fun of it, but here's what you need to know, the founder of PETA said this, this is his famous saying, he says this about humankind, he said, is a pig, is a dog, is a rat, is a boy. That's what the founder of PETA states, a pig, is a rat, is a dog, is a boy, and so the idea is that we're all kind of on this equal playing field. And then again, the problem with that is the Bible. And so think about this practically, the value of human life. I I have three kids, and I have two dogs. My kids are all teenagers, and so we don't always get along. There's tension in the house. They're kind of getting ready, especially the oldest, to, to fly the coop. And it's not that we always get along, but there's a deep love and affection for one another. And there's still, even though I have one that's just literally on the cusp of adulthood and who is... You know, 18 going on 35. He's got it all figured out in right life, right? Even in the midst of that, that's still my boy. And and how many of you would just concede this reality of the value of human life? If there's a house fire in your house, and you know, I don't know how many kids you have, but let's say you have three kids and two dogs. I, I have three kids, and I have Rocky and Rambo. We need them after Stallone movies, and they're about collectively together 10 pounds total, right? They're these little weasels. And they look like hamsters, the, young, the littlest one. And there's a house fire in my house. Now, I love my dogs. I don't love them as much as my wife does. I, I definitely don't love them as much as my middle child does. But I love my dogs. And uh, if there was a house fire, I'd want to protect them. But if it came between, are you tracking? If it came between child A, B, or C and Rocky and Rambo, then I'm hoping that the Disney movie is true, All Dogs Go to Heaven. I don't, I don't think it is. But... I'm hoping that they have something in the future, because guess what? They're going to be burned. I mean, I'm not going to rescue them at the cost of the sanctity of human life. And, and I don't think you would either, because you know something that I know, that, that human life is different. All right, I'm going after the family first, probably the TV second, maybe the dogs third. I don't, I don't know, All right? But there's a value in human life, and God talks about that. Because human life has a high value, it's given by God himself. And so here's why murder is wrong. You have this stamp of God on you, and you're not a part of the animal kingdom. And therefore, to murder in any form of attack is an attack on God. And to attack an individual on any level is an attack on God, because God, uh, because the individual bears the image of God in their life. And the Bible talks about this. Genesis 9, 6, if you like to move quick, it says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For by God, man made man in his own image, we have this image oppressed upon our heart. That we have a divine plan, a divine purpose, a divine pattern. So that's why things are wrong that we take aim at that are controversial. So let's go there. Abortion. Now as a caveat, if that's something that you've had in your life, I'm not condemning you. We're all sinners, we've all done things that we regret, or maybe you walk into this place, you're you're not a Christian, or you're still young in your faith, and you don't even see it as wrong. And so then the question isn't whether or not I think it's wrong, it's not a question of whether or not this is a political issue, it's a question of what does the Bible actually say? Well, there's a sanctity to life, there's an image bearer that we possess in our relationship with God, so even the killing, or especially the killing of an unborn child, it, it's deeply theological. It, it, you have to then say that that thing, that it's not a thing, it's a baby. That baby is not a life. That it's somehow just tissue. And then you look to scripture because you're a Christian now and you say, well, what does the Bible actually say? And you see things happening in scripture like when Mary was pregnant with Joseph and and she had this cousin that she went to celebrate with and she goes to John the Baptist's home and John the Baptist is six months pregnant uh, in his mom's stomach, and Mary lays the message of Jesus. The Bible says that John the Baptist starts leaping in the womb, and so clearly he's alive. And So to take a life would be very ungodly. There's, there's all sorts of texts. In fact, in, in the book of Exodus, the law in the next chapter, verse 22 of chapter 21 says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so that her child comes out, And there's no harm, the one who hit her shall be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose him, and he shall pay uh, as the judges determine. But check this out. But if there is harm to the baby in the womb, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for boon, burn, wound for womb, stripe for stripe, because this Unborn child who is a child is an image bearer of God himself and he has or she has intrinsic value. We're definitely not Catholic in new life, but this is something the Catholics get right. The value of human life and an attack on the baby is an attack on God. Uh, I mentioned Tony Evans. We're gonna go back to him. He, He gives this reference that I love on Right Now Media. He says, it's kind of like viewing life through the, through the lens of a picture frame. And so you can go to the dollar store and uh, you can find someone else's perfect picture of a family in a picture frame. And so if you're cheap like me over the years, you, you just go to the dollar store to buy your frames. And uh, when you do that, when you buy an empty frame, it has little to no value except for the monetary value that you, you pay for it with. Uh, but everything changes all of a sudden when you take that empty frame and you personalize it and you put one of your you know for me three children in that frame now all of a sudden that that picture because there was a time where we didn't have everything saved online that picture has intrinsic value because it's not just an empty frame now that thing has absolute value because when there is life in the womb there is life in the frame is that track I won't use it second service if you nod your heads. I don't know what you're talking about, right? All of a sudden, when you take that life and you put it in the womb, it goes to something that has value to something that has infinite value. It's not just a cheap frame. It's an image bearer. So things happened when they would kill in the Old Testament. There was capital punishment that if you murder a life, a life will be taken from you. There were even guidelines for it. You can see this kind of on the subpoints of the questions if they come up on the screen. What are the guidelines for capital punishment in the Old Testament? We're gonna move on. Uh, you cannot kill someone based on one witness. And, and here's another th- stringent rule they put in place because they wanted to protect the sanctity of life. If you testified against someone for their life and you lied, guess who would go to the electric chair, right? Or guess who would get stoned? It would be you. This was a huge deal in the Old Testament. It was public. It was a deterrent, God says about this reality, he says, I will not hold them guiltless. And so this was a big deal. And so now we we operate from the old to the new. And you think, well, Jesus isn't like that. That's harsh. No, Jesus gives a broader definition that is scary because obviously I'm not going to have you raise your hand. But like Greg said at the top of the service, I would assume most of us have never killed anyone with our bare hands. Most of us have never committed homicide, and so at this point in the message, you could go, man, that's so true, but who cares? It's the who cares principle, where then Jesus is going to take it up a notch. He's going to take it up five notches. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus expands on the law. He expands on the Ten Commandments and this idea on the Sermon of the Mount of what murder looks like. He says this. To the people around him, he says, you have heard it said, and this is a Jewish audience, so they've all heard it. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the fires of hell. And so here's what Jesus does. What Jesus does is he takes something And he expands upon it. The Old Testament gives the minimum standard. Jesus gives the maximum standard. And in giving the maximum standard, he then redefines the definition of murder itself. He says this, when you use your mouth to bring destruction to another person because you are upset, you have done something. You've committed spiritual murder, Who in this room could could stand up and say, Rodney, I have never used my mouth to slander. I have never acted out of anger. I have never defamed anyone's character in my own pride to elevate myself above them. I mean, Jesus just creates an ethic that all of us need to fall under the work of the cross for because all of us are guilty. He even goes further. He says, if you say idiot or fool, You're going to be liable to the fires of hell. Here's where that's really scary. Anyone in this room married? No one's married. It's a miracle from God. (laughs) Who in here is married? Okay, how many of you have not had such pleasantries at every point in your marriage? Like, there have been times where you have said something, and then even when you said it, you were emotionally kind of going, oh, my goodness, I thought that I would never be like my parents. I never thought that we'd have that fight in front of our kids. How many of you have said some things to your spouse that you kind of, maybe I shouldn't have said that? All right, how many liars are not raising their hands right now in church? And you look at this definition of what it means to be a slanderer, what it means to be a spiritual murderer, to have anger in your heart to murder their character, their opportunity. And then Jesus' standard is, when you say things like uh, idiot or fool, you're liable to the fires of hell because you're committing murder in your heart. How many of you are married and you look at that and you go, oh my goodness, I said worse. Like idiots, like second base in our fights. It can go cataclysmic, it can go off the cliff, it can go off the deep end. I've said things and I've done things that make me liable to this idea of having a murderous heart. Guilty as charge. And and here's the theological idea. When you say those things in anger to someone else with a murderous heart, you're not just attacking them, it goes back to the original premise. You're not just attacking them, you're attacking who? You're you're attacking God because they're made in the image of God. And and you're liable, not in an earthly court. I don't think anyone's going to be put to death for calling their spouse or someone else an idiot. But you're liable in the heavenly court. God sees this clearly as a form, as a form of an attack. So all of us now need to write this down. Here's the deeper understanding of what Jesus is saying. Here's what Jesus is saying, and this is what he says over and over again about sin. But here's in regards to murder. He says this. This is the idea. Murder takes place in the heart before, now look at me and then write it down. Murder takes place in the heart before it ever manifests with your hands. That's the idea. That your heart is always the problem. Jesus is saying to Pharisees, but he's saying to us, he says, you're not guiltless simply because you haven't had your finger on the trigger. That if you hate and if you slander, if your heart is bad, you've already committed the act. Whenever your anger causes you to attack based on hurt, race, except whatever it is, you are guilty. This is, this is an angry time, right? In this utopia where we're all becoming more godlike and, and humanism, finding ourselves and the good that's in ourselves. Isn't it ironic and all of that that there's never been more hate? There's never been more anger? There's never been more killing and more destruction? And as a counselor, I can tell you this for certain. People come into to the space of my office when, when I have, you know, in different stages of life had a caseload of working with a lot of people, and now I can't do that anymore. But but just knowing the dynamic, they come into my office with a lot of anger. That anger isn't just an issue, anger is a dominating emotion that raises, ha- wreaks havoc on the culture around us. And, and there are good reasons for anger. It's not like it's all for naught. You walk into a space where you talk to someone and process your emotions, and you do so with this reality that, you know, your dad left you as a child, your, your boss is a jerk, he doesn't promote you like he should, your spouse isn't respecting you, and so you have these issues and you've allowed that to create this space of hate in your heart where you're now operating with this destructive, murderous heart. Anger, anger is not an issue. Anger is one of the issues. In fact, it's also something that's telling on you that something else is wrong. And so you're like, I'm not that angry. Let's just maybe take a poll, right? I mean, instead of you diagnosing your own anger, what do the people around you think of that anger that's in your heart? What's the symptomology attached to the behavior that's manifesting in your life, it, and, and it's gone from these big, overwhelming hurts and pains in your life, to now it's just kind of in the trivial, it's in the small things, it's in the, uh, for no reason, people will say this in a session, that they'll say, you know, it's like, I, I feel like I'm okay, but it's like, I'll go from zero to 10. All of a sudden, something triggers me, and it's, it's like Anakin Skywalker anger, before he goes, You know, just a, little, a quick Star Wars, you guys remember at the end? It's just, he hates Obi-Wan, it's like this anger, and what does Obi-Wan say to him? He's pleading with a mannequin. don't go there, right? Anger's overtaking your heart. That happens in so many of us. It's not kind of an issue, it's a major issue in our life, and we're murderous in our heart, and we think to ourselves we can control something that's really controlling us. Just a little side note, I think this is relevant. You might wanna just attach yourself to this idea because this one's free. You think it's like a zero to 10 and your spouse will come to a pastor or come to a counselor and say, I don't know what to do, we're on our wit's end. It's like he's going from a zero to a 10. This one's free, are you ready? This is something counterintuitive you might not realize. You're not going from a zero to 10 with your anger and your murderous heart. You're living at a seven and it doesn't take much from a seven to go to a 10. And so because all of these things are not being dealt with, repented of, brought to the cross of Christ, you're living at a seven in your workplace. You're living at a seven with your spouse. You're living at a seven with your children. You're living at a seven with your past that you have not processed through and forgiven for. And so your baseline is way off. You think that your baseline is like a one. Look at me. This is important. This is going to answer some questions in your life right now. You think your baseline is a one and then all of a sudden you don't know what happens and then you're at a ten. No, your baseline is at a seven. You walk in a general state of agitation because people have hurt you and life is not fair and in your own hypocrisy, you're up here, and everyone else down here treats you like a pile, and you don't get what's going on, and you're agitated, and you're no fun to be around, and if your spouse is to be honest with you, they're at their wit's end with you because you are exhausting everyone around you. You're not at a one, you're at a seven, and it doesn't take much to go from a seven to nuclear at a ten, and the problem is your baseline because you haven't brought those things to the cross of Christ. Now, maybe for you, you're like, yeah, yeah, let's move on. But for others of you who are in this situation or married to it, this is like, these things that we don't bring to the cross get much, much worse. Christ has to lower the baseline. Here's what's so devastating Jesus creates an ethic that's impossible to conform to without repenting and turning to Him, and He does it on purpose. But Jesus knows something. Jesus knows when we have these issues, this anger in our heart, that we don't just commit spiritual homicide spiritually. Here's what he knows. And take this the right way because this could bring up something, and I'm not trying to go there unnecessarily, but I want to give you a word picture for this. Jesus knows something. Jesus knows that when you commit spiritual homicide, what you're actually doing as well is you're committing spiritual suicide that you're not just destroying someone else's reputation or living in anger and being impossible to live with. What you're doing is you're, in, you're destroying your own soul spiritually. It's, it's like a form of emotional suicide, living with this anger that Jesus talks about as an equivalent to murder. And even in the physical, here's what it does, just in case you didn't know. It creates headaches, insomnia, digestion problems, abdominal pain, anxiety, depression, high blood pressure, heart attacks, strokes. So, so even just as a, as a general baseline, it's, it's a bad deal. And so Jesus brings it to light And then the question becomes how we close this thing out. How do you deal with this murderous heart? Because I don't think after building that case that anyone wants to be Cain in the Old Testament. No one wants to live with this murderous heart that manifests in the hand. So what do you do about it? The last question, write it down. Here's some sub points. What do you do do with a murderous heart? Well, you have to understand some things. And then you have to operate in some things. You have to understand personally this idea of forgiveness that's destroying you. It's destroying you. Understand forgiveness, that you must forgive the person who's caused the anger. You must forgive the offense. That that in the court of law, metaphorically, you say in, in this court of law that you've created in your own mind, That when you see them, you you tell yourself something that only angers you more. And it's true. It's just devastating, right? It's true. You look at them and the offense that they've caused against you, and you say to yourself, they owe me. They have done. And it's like we are so good at creating a list for everyone else's wrongs. Are we not? They have done this. They have done this. They have done this. If you don't believe me, just go to your workplace, and all the people that have wronged you in your workplace, or even better yet, go to your marriage and all the injustice that you believe have happened, and then once they make every change you want them to make, and they live the perfect life that you wanted them to live, then maybe, just maybe, just maybe, you will think about forgiveness. No, that's not how it works. You want to be released from that emotional and spiritual prison that you're living in? Do you want to overcome a murderous heart in your own life? You have to understand forgiveness. Defined by this, when you see them, you don't see the bill that they owe you anything because you've surrendered that to Christ. That's how you know you've forgiven them. Kelly Brennan told me this a long time ago. I want to repeat this. It just came to my mind right now. He says, you know you've forgiven someone when you see them out and about and you immediately don't wish the worst for them. Have you ever had an emotional enemy in your life? They don't even know that you don't like them, but they've hurt you and that you haven't forgiven them. And then you hear something good about them. Look at me. You hear something good about them and your first emotional response is cringe. Or you hear something bad about them and it's like the Grinch. You're a mean one, You haven't forgiven anybody. You haven't forgiven anyone. If they're still alive, release them. If they've gone to be with the Lord, or maybe not even, release them. Because here's the second idea to walk in this type of freedom, you, you have to understand things theologically that you have to forgive, but then you have to understand that God is the one who takes care of the debts. You have to understand God's vengeance, God's justice and God's sovereignty over every situation in your life. The Bible says very clearly in the Old Testament, if, you, if you're struggling to walk through this process, vengeance is somebody's and it's not yours. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. I've got it. James 1 says the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And when vengeance is yours, all sorts of things wreak havoc because that's not the design. Here's something else, just hold on to this idea as well. How, how do you walk through this process? Then I, for me that this has been incredibly healing. that every offense against me has served us has served a purpose within me. I like that. I just came up with that at the top of my head. that every offense again against me has served a purpose within me. Every offense against you has served a purpose within you. And so how do you overcome these things? How do you overcome a murderous heart? That this is what you do. You understand God's kingdom purpose in your life. That these things aren't in vain. That God knows the injustice and that you don't have to fight like we sing about in church. You don't have to fight your battles. And that every main scripture reference to a person who's used powerfully in the kingdom of God has a common denominator. That all of us, all of them have been through stuff. Moses was treated unjustly. David was treated unjustly. Joseph was treated unjustly. Paul was treated unjustly. All the people who are the main pillars that hold the faith up, they all went through stuff. They they had a kingdom purpose within the process. And that stuff that happens to us is doing stuff within us. And so then the way that we release the murderous heart is we understand that God uses all these things to give us a ministry that makes his son known in the lives of other people You will not have an effective ministry. I can't have an effective ministry if I haven't been through anything. I I can't come to you and listen to you and be there for you when my entire life has just been a cakewalk. No one's there. Someone comes to me, you don't understand my marriage is this. You don't understand this happened to me at work. Yeah, I I mean, I'm, I'm almost 43, right? There's stuff that happens. There's stuff that happens within the church. It's not always Perfect. There's stuff that happens at home. There's stuff that happens in the workplace. I mean, this is just called real life. And so God takes those things and uses those things for his glory to give you kingdom purpose so that you can have a ministry that's impactful. Here's the last one. Understand, and this is the most basic of ideas, and it's so predictable, but here it is. It's true for a reason. Understand what Jesus did for you. If you want to be released from this emotional prison that you're living in, you have to preach the gospel to yourself. Like the great reformers mentioned over and over again, you have to preach the gospel to yourself not once a week, daily, hourly, minute by minute that Jesus did something for you and the whole gospel is this, that forgiveness is all about counseling the debt. You don't have to pay back Jesus for what he did for you. Can anyone say amen? Is, is, any, is it too early or are we just too Midwestern, right? We shouldn't be too Aberdonian to, to, to celebrate that reality in our lives. That's an Amen. Thank you, five of you, all right. Forgiveness is canceling the debt that you don't have to pay back. That's the heart of the gospel. Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus pays the penalty. Jesus pays the debt that's canceled on our behalf. And so all of that outstanding debt on the lives of other people around you that you're holding and tallying because that's what we do in our passive aggressive culture, right? We just smile, Minnesota nice, but we remember, don't we? Back in 2008, this happened. How many of you ever been to like a, a coffee meeting where people will start telling you sins that were committed in Aberdeen like 25 years ago? None of you? Okay. Right? Okay, sure. I've been here over 20 years. Liar. And it's like, oh, well, their uncle did this. I mean, man, people in the Midwest, we're, they're a wonderful people group. But we have memories like elephants, do we not? It's like their their great-grandpa did that when Aberdeen was founded. What? Jesus forgave him 100 years ago. You're still talking about it over coffee. Well, that happened in this small town. Who cares? You want to be released from that bondage? Understand what Jesus did for you, canceling that debt, and then take that and put it on display for the rest of the world to see. That's how you walk through healing. And until you walk through that, the Bible says this, <coughs> that murder is defined more by what you do with your hands and it starts in your heart and that you have a murderous heart. Unresolved anger, unresolved forgiveness. Let's pray. Jesus, we we love you. We thank you for your word. We Thank you for children at New Life being dedicated. We thank you for the start of life at conception. We thank you for the duration of life that you give us. And we would ask you as a people to to cancel our debt, and then as a result that we could cancel the debt of others around us. Deal with our hearts, Jesus. We pray this in your precious and holy name. Everyone said, Amen. amen.